think Mike Duffy called them the boys in short pants. And I they're both boys and girls because I've seen them. Women and men. Hello, this is episode 72 of the Boys in Short Pants, the 73rd episode. I'm Laurent Carboneau. We're, we're really getting up there. We're getting old. We're, we are. We're losing our relevance. That said, we are both under 30, so... Our, our we grasp have, on reality. We have years until we become desiccated husks, uh, no longer fit to live. Uh, I guess that's where I say all mates in Rainville. Yes. Uh, and welcome to, as I said, episode 72 of the 73rd episode. Um, we have a little bit of a... We, we got a, a kind of a crowded programming schedule in the near future, uh, but we wanted to take this episode to talk about something uh, that we haven't really talked about before at all, though obviously we, we've mentioned many of their, their fine works and wares, uh, but Officers of Parliament. Yes. Uh, do you want to tell us what Officers of Parliament are and sort of <laughs> basic uh, basic introduction to what they do, who they are, what they're up to, how they can be stopped? Okay, I, I will start by saying there are nine Officers of Parliament. It's kind of like it's like you have seven kingdoms and the privacy commissioner is like the knight's king. <laughs> no spoilers. Um, I, I didn't spoil anything. There are nine officers of parliament and they're sort of like our system's referees. Yes. Um, they are appointed uh, through a governor and council process, but it's a little different than most um, in that there's the expectation of consultation with the leaders of all the recognized parties in the House of Commons and the Senate. Also, just for anyone who's unaware, when we say recognized parties uh, in the House of Commons, that means parties with at least 12 seats. So right now, that is liberals, conservatives, NDP, and that is it. Yeah, tough luck, Maxime. You're and not, the Bloc, who have 10. being consulted. Yeah, and Elizabeth May, who also is not being consulted. Correct. Um, so of- often when they go through their appointment process, the consultation, uh, I mean, it can be structured in various ways, but occasionally it'll be consultation with the parties prior to the appointment um sometimes it'll be like submitting the name to the house of commons yeah um a committee process wherein the candidate is grilled by the committee and then uh, a resolution uh passing in the house of commons and the senate uh to appoint the individual and then the eventual yes. gic appointment process. and there, there's pursuant to the committee thing there's usually a step there where the committee passes a resolution in support of the candidates sure. candidacy um but in the event that they're not supported it really doesn't matter because the letter of the law is just that the other parties need to be consulted yes um and not that they need to consent um, so I think it basically passes the House of Commons with a simple majority. Yes, it would. Uh, Duff Conacher would would lose his mind, but it would be it would be yes that would, that would probably be the worst of it. I mean, Duff has often take taken issue with the appointment process of officers of Parliament, uh, calling into question their legitimacy based on their backgrounds. But this has actually been a fairly common trend in terms of some of our officers. And just of for Parliament people, as of late. just for people who aren't in Ottawa, also Duff Conacher is the head of the uh, government independent government watchdog, Democracy Watch. Now you can't say independent government. That makes it sound like independent he's... watchdog of government. There you How go. about that? Uh, that's I think most people understood what that meant in a colloquial sense. But there you go. Um, yeah, no. So so yes, we, he's. He, he is a very, very hardworking guy who often gets things right. Uh, he is, however, a watchdog that does not stop barking. And that's, you know, credit to him. Speaking of getting things right, that will tie in well to our conversation that we'll have here shortly um, as we go through some of the different officers of parliament. Um, so let's just enumerate them to begin with. Uh, there's the Auditor General. The Classic. Ch- currently Ch- currently vacant after Michael Ferguson's sad and untimely death uh, over... Well, last winter. Correct. Uh, the chief electoral officer, uh, the commissioner of official languages. Uh, one would will recall the recent controversy over the government trying to appoint a fairly partisan yes officer of official uh, commissioner of official yeah, who languages. Yeah, could have been a cabinet minister in Ontario, liberal cabinet minister. Yes. Yeah. The information commissioner, the privacy commissioner, the conflict of interest and ethics commissioner, the commissioner of lobbying, the public sector integrity commissioner. And the parliamentary budget officer. Who until recently was actually just basically an office inside the Library of Parliament. But the Budget and Implementation Act that we discussed a couple years ago that gave them the mandate to examine party platforms also bumped them up to full officer of parliament status. That is correct. And that takes us to a conversation of... Why do we have these? Well, why do we have them? They're often in sort of unique and interesting jurisdictions. Yes. Um, They sit somewhere between quasi-law enforcement and sort of arm's-length watchdog. Yeah. Um, Their jurisdictions are all sort of interesting. They're sort of where the government 
really needs to back away from an area, like, for instance, overseeing their own lobbying and conflict of interest. Yeah. Um, so they they lend legitimacy to areas that could be particularly partisan or particularly charged yeah. if the government were to be a little closer. Yeah. And that in part is why the appointment of some of these officers of parliament uh, historically has been so controversial um, as not uh, often not all parties have been on side. Um, some have been more point. Uh, some have been more controversial. Some have been less controversial. Yeah. But we can we can certainly so get into that. To, to give some recent examples, uh, I would say the appointment of Mario Dion and Caroline Mérin or Ménard, excuse me, Caroline Ménard as privacy or sorry as a commission, conflict of interest in ethics and information commissioners respectively was fairly uncontroversial. Uh, however, the appointment of, of Daniel Terrien as privacy commissioner back in 2014, I believe it was, was actually fairly controversial. Uh, there was a suspicion that he had he would be a sort of, uh, you know, very conservative friendly uh, appointment that turned out to not really be the case. Uh, so fair enough. So, yeah, for context, Daniel Terrien had been a uh, civil servant within the uh, the public service and had worked on national security legislation. And so the opposition tried to paint him as somewhat of a fox in the hen house yes. when it came to overseeing privacy. Um, I think it's been largely the opposite. And he has been able to execute his responsibilities fairly judiciously and without uh, yes, without anyone impugning his motives as of late. No, and he's and I think it's, it's fair to say that he's been quite activist in terms of pushing for for additional powers for the office and uh, being able to protect privacy more vigorously. Uh, but we will return to that because I have a lot to say about the privacy commissioner's office. Okay, well, which which officer of parliament do you want to start with? Because we're going to do a little bit of a deep dive on several of these. Uh, sort of a, a status update. What have they? What have they been up to lately? What are they doing of note? Sure. Um, some I, I couldn't tell you. I have no idea what the official language commissioner has been up to. I couldn't really either. No, not a clue. Uh, but some of the other ones have been making the news lately. Um, if if you're watching for it. Yes. Well, I think privacy is the biggest one in terms of getting headlines recently. But I think we'll come back to him. He made the he made the New York Times. He did. And I guess also the other one is a conflict of interest and ethics commissioner who we talk about a fair bit. Um, so why don't we start there? Conflict of interest and ethics? Yes. Uh, so Mar- is, He's back at work, by the way, for yeah. anyone who was unaware. So Mario was off for, I think, about a month. Um, yeah, on, five, six weeks. Uh, some sort of health uh, short-term leave. Um, and is now back in the office. And there's sort of one major thing on his plate um which is the investigation of the prime minister for yes. conflict and of his office it is a little uh yeah um so that's a fairly significant uh file and i guess the biggest asterisk there or the biggest question mark rather is whether or not that investigation will be completed um prior to the election and say it's completed during the rip period what do they do yeah, well, do they do they, do they summon do, the task force, <laughs> <laughs> the critical election incident or, response panel, or, or do they James Comey it? Like what? So there, there's actually a few question marks there. I tend to, based on the history of the office, that the invest the initial investigation into uh, Justin Trudeau and the Aga Khan's Island took like almost a year. It took quite a while. Uh, yeah. It took just under a year, I believe. Um, so for the Aga Khan one, or not the Aga Khan, sorry for SNC Lavalin. I think if the timeline is similar, it'll put us well beyond the election. I think there's kind of a sense that, like... But, like, is there an impetus for the commissioner to, like, hurry things up so that Canadians can know prior to the election? Well, I think part of it is that there's probably an impetus on the government's part to slow things down, as in, oh, that date doesn't work for me. Can we schedule this? (laughs) No, I'm not kidding. Like, I really think they're probably dragging their heels for, like the critical interviews and that kind of stuff as much as they humanly can. Oh, I, I, yeah. Like, I, why wouldn't they? <laughs> I certainly don't doubt it. When it comes to being forthcoming with voluntary, quasi-voluntary compliance with the commissioner, um, you know... I'm um, sure they will be as compliant as they have to be. Yes, but <laughs> there's not timelines on that. So, yeah, no, you're, exactly you're that. absolutely right, and that can be stretched out quite a bit, I imagine. Yes, I think that... that I mean, like, you know, fair enough. I think that that's a fair game to play. You're six months out from an election. You you don't need the commissioner coming out with that. To, to address your James Comey thing, I, I think there is a critical distinction to make, and I know you were sort of saying that tongue-in-cheek. 
Um, but I, I, yeah, well, maybe, I don't know. I hope so. Uh, but I think an important distinction to make there is that with Comey, you had someone sort of announcing that there had maybe been evidence or they basically were like, it was like the Geraldo Rivera vault thing. It was like, we found the vault and then they opened it and turned out there was nothing. But like they announced that a week later rather than like, here is a report with our conclusions into our investigation, right? Like it was a very different kind of thing. So I, I I just I address this only because I can hear the liberal partisans already. Uh, though I don't know, do they like Comey right now? I I sort of forget if Comey's in favor or not. I think Comey's a bad guy. Is he bad again? Because he bad. was good there for a while. I think he's bad. Okay, because he was when he was fired by Trump, he was good for a while, and then he like takes pictures of various landscapes, being like the honor of dignity is stoicism, <laughs> and like he's insufferable, and I don't like him. But so, there you go. But this this has come up, and. This has come up before um, with the parliamentary budget officer um, and the releasing of reports, timing that around elections. Yes. Uh, once upon in the Kevin Page years, if if I recollect correctly. Um, I mean, this go round, the PBO's role will be a little different in that they are uh, expressly tasked with releasing costing of platform yes. items. And there, to be clear for people, and we have discussed this before in past episodes, but that that will not be like the party releases something, the PBO does some some napkin math and says this is good or not. They're kind of working collaboratively with the parties kind of from the get-go to sort of work out costing of these things, and they'll be making you know their work public, basically, is how that's envisioned to work. No? No. No, I'd have to read through the document again. A few months ago, uh, the parliament, uh, the parliamentary budget office, uh, released the document of how this would work, which is when we discussed this. Um, yeah. But I think it puts things in the hands of the parties as to whether or not to release, which makes a lot of sense because. Well, I th- that's like, what I'm, I'm saying. If they are working with the PBO to get analysis of their proposals, yes. then the costing of that will be made public, no. like the work that the PBO does. Why don't we no. just check this? Why don't we check it? We checked it and I was right. Etan, do you want to concede defeat again for the listeners? I think this is the first time you've ever been right on one of these uh, points of fact. That's possible, actually. Actually, the last time I think we did this was, in fact, for the PBO (laughs) platform costing thing. I didn't hear you concede defeat, though. I was wrong. There we go. Uh, but at any rate, yes. So they work with parties, uh, and if they they sort of work with parties from the sort of inception stage through to publication, then they will release their their math, which will hopefully be better than napkin math. But there are various other conditions in which the PBO would not release yes. uh, partial estimates or yes. et, cetera, et cetera. Yeah, basically, if they can't do the request, they they don't publish it unless it's actually. I should rephrase that. They will publish requests, but not their analysis, if they are, for some reason, unable to fulfill it. So this sort of takes us into, uh, let, let's just cover, touch on parliamentary budget officers, as, as we've been alluding to. Sure. This is basically what PBO is ramping up for. PBO always has a few sort of reports on the go. Oh, yeah. They come out with, like, they, one every other week, probably. Yeah. They yeah. Were recently released one on carbon pricing. Yes. Um, the distributional impacts of carbon pricing, to correct. be clear. Yeah. Which um, actually didn't get a ton of press, considering that it basically confirmed that the federal carbon tax has, like, progressive distributional effects. Yes. Yes. Though you think they would have trumpeted that more. I don't know. <laughs> it was, it was, I would have. It was a break week. That is um, true. So, and yeah, so PBO will be ramping up and you'll see a lot more of them during the election as uh, campaign pillars come out. Yes. And parties opt to trumpet them as costed by PBO. Yes. um, Which is, you know, new. It's novel. um, So we'll see how it plays out. I know that PBO has been putting a lot of resources into figuring out how they're going to do costing with parties, how it's going to function what sort of timelines they're going to give themselves, what types of costings they can do, et cetera. Yeah, I, I, think, I think it's worth taking a bit of a step back from the sort of smaller picture of election costing to what is the point of PBO? I, like, what is what is the idea that it is supposed to accomplish? Like, when Parliament decided to create a parliamentary budget officer, what was it hoping to do? So it was a creation by the Harper government once, do, 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 do. <laughs> once upon a time. The strong, stable, national conservative majority government. Um, to bring sort of more fiscal transparency to government. Um, and it's one of the institutions created during that time that has been sort of universally lauded. Yes. Um, Except by conservatives in some instances. Well, to be fair. Yeah, no, they, yeah, we've talked about the Jets. 
Well, <laughs> I don't. I don't know if we've talked about the Jets fully. We alive. never did the Ian Brody book episode. I no, suppose. that's still on the reading list. If if you're reading along, hurry <laughs> up. Uh, but as Ian Brody points out in that book, it, at the center of government, available at fine bookstores everywhere. Probably cor- not though, because it's been out for a while. Correct, and it's an academic text that costs like thirty five bucks. Yeah. Um, the the Jets were the the question. There's a lot of. There's a lot of asterisks on that costing. Yes. And it perhaps wasn't PBO's finest hour. Perhaps um, not. And I think the Kevin Page era of PBO, there was a lot of lessons learned. And the government was certainly at loggerheads with the newly created institution. Yes. And I'm sure regretted it somewhat. Yes. Um, but PBO has become more refined so, since those days. When you talk about bringing fiscal transparency to government, I think there is an aspect of it that was definitely like giving parliamentarians and the public more yes. and better information about the operations of government and how much it costs and all that stuff. And I think that is is quite critical. I think another really important aspect of this as well is that it gave parliamentarians the ability to call on the PBO to perform costing, uh, which gave that because parliamentarians do not have deep policy capacity at all. What? I think it's it's really worth saying and Col- reiterating. Color me shocked. <laughs> no, but for people who who don't know, right, who don't who are not in the bubble, parliamentarians just do not have a lot of capacity. They they have, you know, a couple of staff on the hill, maybe 3, 4 in a bigger office like on the hill? On the hill? No, it has four staff on. That would that would be a lot. Where's if if you if your constituency three, is empty? Let's say three staff and an intern or something, right? Like that's sure. not not unheard of. Um that would yeah so at any rate it, it, and they're dealing with all kinds of stuff no one is like sitting there in a corner like writing a fully costed report about whatever the shadow budget yeah no and like i you know like why have the N- why have the ndp never produced a shadow bia yeah that would be that would be fun um no and it's like a capacity i think a, a lot of people on parliament hill wish was available to parliamentarians but the, the fact is that parliamentary budgets are are just not so um OLO, um, which is the leader of, office of the leader of the official opposition, has a bit more resources. Uh, but even then, they're not really doing like blue sky policy thinking either. Yeah. Um, like they, they could do a little more if they wanted to, but it's not the best use of their resources compared to more communications, regional sort of stakeholder relations, etc. Um, Oppos- opposition research. Opposition fall, research falls under that. Yeah, banner. there there is some stakeholder policy relations there. falls under that banner yeah. of the one sort of OLO yeah. or. Uh, but even LRB, the CRG budget, whatever. Even the leader of like about. the third party's office does not have the the size, staff, budget, etc., to really do this kind of stuff in depth. So, it, it is helpful to parliamentarians to say, okay, this is what this would cost, and to sort of scrutinize more closely the spending of government because you you know you're getting these, um, you know, estimates documents with departmental spending, and like that can be helpful if you know what you're looking for. But often that expertise takes time to build up. Uh, So this kind of stuff is really helpful. So I think the PBO is quite helpful, though it does speak to, I think there are a lot of sort of officers of parliament uh, that sort of do a job that I think parliament is unwilling or unable to do itself. Not for all of them. I don't really see the point of parliamentarians doing the job of the privacy commissioner or the information commissioner, for instance. But certainly in the case of, of the parliamentary budget officer, parties and politicians theoretically could do it themselves in their own offices but there's been a determination made that we just don't want parliamentary office budgets to be high enough to support that which fine um and concentrating the expertise in one space so everyone gets the same you know caliber of of access and of the expertise they're getting so fair enough it's a choice right and i think the conflict commissioner uh was a choice made to sort of take uh, the issues of conflict of interest out of the political realm and into the sort of realm of regulatory compliance. I don't think that has been entirely successful in the sense that it's still quite political um, in the sense that, you know, you have party. Well, it's it's changed the game a little bit and that the opposition parties will say, wow, this prime minister is being investigated or has been found guilty of violating the conflict of interest act. And then the ruling party says, well, we are comp- yeah, we are letting it work through this non-political process and we're complying with the investigation, which everyone who listens to this podcast, I'm sure, has heard a lot of over the last couple of months. So what, what's interesting about that statement is talking about how politicized the uh, ethics commissioner has become. Uh, but 
talking about that in regards to PBO is actually a, pr- a particularly interesting conversation because PBO actually has to sort of strike the right balance yep. between itself uh, being considered sufficiently neutral, but knowing that, similar to the ethics commissioner, everything that they publish likely becomes a, cl- a cudgel for someone to wield. Yes. Um, and in their new role, that's magnified. But as you alluded to, that parliamentarians can request costings of things. They can request costing of other parties' yeah. uh, platforms or platforms or sort of policy ideas, uh, notably in this uh, in this session of parliament. Uh, Pierre Polyev requested a costing of UBI based on X assumptions. Yeah. The NDP, I believe, requested a costing of uh, Pharmacare based on the Quebec model. Yep. Um, and these are all things used to pressure the government, you know, bludgeon the opposition. However, however yeah. Was uh, it under the Quebec model? For... The Pharmacare thing? I it's really I, I think, totally I, immaterial. I, I think it was, okay. or it, it uh, borrowed a lot of assumptions from the Quebec. Model. Okay. Oh, that yeah. Okay. Um, but all, all of this is to say the ways in which these officers are used, or their reports and findings are used by the opposition, are actually really interesting, uh, because they have to straddle a very fine line between nonpartisan, but knowing that what they're going to publish is going to be wielded as a weapon. Yeah. So going back to PBO. Uh, PBO is sort of in an unprecedented role here where they're going to be doing election costing. Um, so it'll be interesting, not if parties just do the costing and run on that, but if parties pick apart other parties, uh, other parties' costings, that is often done during campaigns. We saw this with Jason Kenney and Rachel Notley yeah. going at each other for gaps and holes in their budget. Um, it, it'll just be interesting to watch to see if that dynamic plays out when the PBO costing um, is up in the air. Yeah, I think as well. I, I mean, or is one of the factors. I think there is a bit of a danger to to outsourcing too much of your your economic and policy thinking and budgetary thinking to uh, a sort of neutral office. I think the the Congressional Budget Office in the U.S. is a good example to point to uh, in the sense that it is very expert. Uh, they are clearly quite good at at doing scoring, and they they have a staff of hundreds rather than a staff of dozens. So there is obviously an operational capacity difference there. But, you know, they produce scores of, of big fiscal bills in, you know, a handful of days. And that's that's quite impressive. On the other hand, I think it's because they are very wedded to, you know, the, their model, um, you know, it's taken as authoritative. And for like that has good and bad effects. I think when you looked at sort of the uh, tortured passage of some of the or well, as it turns out, not passage of some of the Republican health care bills. Uh, in the U.S. Congress uh, yeah. a year or two ago, they were receiving really, really bad CBO scores. Um, I mean, part of the game at that point became waiting for CBO, trying to pass things before they could be scored. Yes. Uh. Yeah, which is weird. But I mean, yeah, in a sense, you you sort of have to not let yourself be completely a prisoner to CBO, which is, you know, like it's there to advise Congress, but at the same time, Congress can take or leave the advice it gives it. And I think it's important to just keep in mind that experts come at things not necessarily with an ideological agenda but certainly an ideological worldview and that you know you take their advice and you you sort of take it in good grace but you realize that sometimes if you they're just thinking on a different kind of like wavelength or worldview that you kind of just need to like move on with what you're going to do and you know that's what you got to do sometimes I, I think cbo has been fairly damaging to sort of u.s policy making in that way i think it's become very ossified and sort of like leads people to try and game cbo scores rather than like doing good policy (laughs) which yeah definitely some bad i think anytime you sort of institutionalize any kind of like policy grading you're gonna lead yourself down the hole of sort of gamifying the the grading rather than actually trying to make a policy that will work sure yeah uh let's leave pbo there and go over to the lobbying commissioner because the lobbying commissioner has I'll say gotten in hot water with the federal court as of late. Do you want to explain what happened there? Sure. So uh, Democracy Watch, who I guess we, we mentioned earlier, so th- <laughs> they need no introduction, um, brought a suit against uh, the lobbying commissioner at federal court. Uh, or I guess they, I don't know if they technically brought a suit against whatever. I'm not a lawyer. At any rate, there was a legal proceeding that Democracy Watch ended up winning about whether the grounds for the lobbying commissioner to refuse to investigate um the lobbying implications of the trip that 
uh, Justin Trudeau and Seamus O'Regan and their respective spouses took to the Aga Khan's vacation island in the Bahamas, um, basically on the grounds that the Aga Khan was not paid uh, for his role as the chair of the board of directors of the Aga Khan Foundation Canada. Uh, the reasoning of the ruling was basically that the act does not specify necessarily payment it specifies remuneration which is or sorry and i'm getting this the opposite yes they do not specify monetary payment but they encompass payment as meaning a broader variety of benefits which should have been examined in the commissioner's reasoning so this is a novel interpretation by the court i Um, would say it's a i'm well sorry go ahead it is novel (laughs) in terms the precedent of the uh lobbying commissioner was to understand that um, people who were not paid for their roles were able to engage in lobbying activity without registration because they didn't mm-hmm. hit the uh, definition of lobbying. Yes. Yeah. So or if you're a re- registrable work in the So act. if you're a billionaire who lives off his investments and doesn't need to actually work for a salary like the Agacon, then you have no constraints on your lobbying because you're not paid for it. So this is this is the loophole. Yes. Um, that we we talked about it at the time. We did. Um, saying. This is sort of awkward that the Aga Khan, because he doesn't draw a salary, yes, can get away with all this stuff. Whereas if he were paid a single dollar, um, he would presumably not be able to get away with right uh, with some of the same actions. However, where this has sort of uh, second stage effects is the billionaire philanthropist or billionaire billionaire with with, with the board who's not drawing a salary is one thing just because they're wealthy. Um, where it's having a little more interesting implications as well would be with nonprofit boards, NGOs, sure. um, who have uh, unpaid unpaid voluntary boards. Yeah, which is a um, lot of them. So now, if the, not most, if if the well, the court has asked that the lobbying commissioner take a second look, and they haven't provided a hard and fast definition. Yeah, but if in fact the definition becomes changed to all of paid rather than just limited the limited understanding of sort of monetary remuneration there will be a remuneration (laughs) i feel like i struggled with this before yeah yeah. um there there will be a lot of organizations that are impacted somewhat inadvertently um and it's worth considering whether that impact will be detrimental to the public uh discourse in canada or not i mean i've always said like registering to lobby is not that hard it's harder than you think it's harder than i think perhaps but it's not that hard and if you are doing like public policy advocacy work maybe it just kind of comes with the territory and that's just part of the job like when facebook's head lobbyist or sorry their head public affairs person was not lobby uh, not a registered lobbyist it's like facebook can comply with the law you know and they felt it was but that, that's a different story no right? but i'm saying like it, it's that's not a completely different example my point is just that like it is not hard to register to lobby, and I think people who use the difficulty of the process as this excuse face- are like... Facebook wasn't doing that, though. Face- Facebook was uh, claiming the 10% rule. 20%. 20% rule? 20% rule. Yes, 20, yeah. 20% rule? Yes. No, but that's my point. It's just that like they, they, could have lo- they could have registered just to be on the safe side, as many organizations do, but they didn't because it's kind of tedious and you had to do some paperwork. No, it, uh, arguably it wasn't for that. Facebook didn't register because they felt they claimed that they did not hit the threshold no, and I am familiar. To, to require to register i, I know what they were saying no but it wasn't about the paperwork burden right like it wasn't facebook is not sitting there being like oh we're gonna have to file paperwork that's deeply upsetting to us therefore we're going to limit our lobbying activity to save under this 20 percent <laughs> threshold no but, so that we don't have to file a couple no papers. absolutely papers. I, yeah but my point is for small ngos be it like the ottawa food bank or whoever it is who are going to have people come in, maybe do a lobby day on the hill and go yeah. meet with all these people. Now, all of a sudden, every registrable communication yeah. is going to be registered because these people are engaging in lobbying, whereas previously, if they're doing it unpaid, they'd fall under the radar. So yeah. for a lot of community groups, this introduces a new paperwork burden. And it, it's, you know, you can look at it and you can read through the act and sort of have a sense that, oh, okay, this is how it works. It's not too hard. You, you file yeah. paperwork every now and again. For an organization that has never had to engage with the lobbying act before, it represents a substantial hurdle to public advocacy work. Sure. Um, one that is intimidating if you're outside of the bubble and have never heard of the lobbying act before. I think that's fair. I think if we were to expand this, and I, I do think, frankly, that it probably should be expanded. I think that people have a right to know who talks to government and what about. Uh, and I also think people have the right to talk to government about whatever they want for the most part. Um, I think we should make that as easy as possible to do. 
right? I think that we should make compliance easy. I think that would be a that would be a good compromise on this. The the current law is not written to allow easy compliance. Yes. Well, if, on, mean, if only a certain government would direct <laughs> a certain House of Commons would direct a certain committee to examine the law and make because uh, that the lobbying act is up for statutory review every five years. Um, or every five years. Or yes. The first five. Years? No, it is every five years. We've been over this conflict. Yeah, the other one is, one is the one that was years. just gotcha. the first five years. Yes. Uh, but yes. So that has not happened. It is actually currently like. Waiting, yeah, overdue statutory review, and these are all good things that I but, think should be discussed in the context of that statutory review. But like the Reform Act, if the statutory review never happens, then you're in trouble. No, you're not in any trouble. There's no, well, I mean, there's no you're, consequences. you're in trouble in the sense that like the law doesn't improve. You you are yes. breaking a law that has no ramifications for being broken. Yes, sort of like when the RCMP never responds to a tip request. Yes. Um, <laughs> Good segue. You want to talk about the information <laughs> commissioner? Oh, well, I guess actually we should say quickly about the lobbying commissioners that the federal government is appealing the federal court ruling. Okay, yeah. Yeah, because so, they're basically saying that it's extra vires of the power. Was it extra or ultra? Because it's usually ultra vires. Yeah, but, I, don't, I don't remember. Okay, I, whatever. I didn't, I didn't focus on the Latin words in the court ruling. I usually do. Uh, but yeah, they basically ruled that because the lobbying commissioner is an officer of parliament, that the federal court doesn't have jurisdiction to look at what they've done and examine the reasoning and force them to do things i feel like the word mandamus was in there um yeah that they that it didn't represent the and this is what um democracy watch wanted wanted the federal court to compel the commissioner to do something yes um but the federal court said well federal court said it was fine it's the federal government that is saying that there's an issue here no the federal court said they weren't going to take the authority they weren't going to use their authority and wait they were, the were they recommending over compelling oh, no they, they okay, didn't compel right. the commissioner yeah. they said we're he, we're gonna provide you some sort of new definition some some new framework and we would like you to reconsider okay yes your initial assessment you're right yeah um so the lobbying commissioner could very well come back with the exact same assessment and say i think they might out of spite here's here's how we feel <laughs> um but as far as i know at this time the lobbying commissioner has not issued new guidance um, based on the federal court's ruling. So I, I think it's still somewhat being digested at this point. Yes. So we will see what happens with that. Uh, so information commissioner, speaking of, so let's, let's imagine that we had segued that perfectly. What, what would you like to say about the information commissioner? Uh, just kind of what their job is. I think so. Okay. So if you're like me, you file a lot of access information requests. Um, and so the idea with the access information system is that you file a request, you pay a government department $5. Well, you pay the receiver general of Canada $5. And 30 days later, you get a response to whatever your request for documents, correspondence, briefings, whatever. Uh, you get it back and you get it on a nice little CD, uh, which no one has CD drives anymore. It's, it's very misleading because you like check the box and you say, I want an electronic copy. And you're yeah. like, I'm going to get an email. No, it's a PDF on a CD. Yeah. <laughs> yes. uh, which I don't know. I think it's fine. Some people think that's whatever. Who cares? Uh, it would be nice if they sent you an email. In, PDF. It's it's in the uh, the ATIP long term strategy. In the next two years, there's uh, two is very generous. I think it's by 2022 or something that we're supposed to transition to USBs. Yeah. Uh, is it, no, is it USBs or an online portal? I think it's an online portal. Online portal. Okay. Uh, we're getting we're getting the word from the booth that it's online portal. Um, so at any rate, yes, our access information system uh, is creaky. Uh, you do not often get your documents in 30 days or less, uh, and there is not a guarantee. Your pizza is not free. Uh, but what happens is then departments uh, give you an extension notice. Uh, they say, actually, this is going to take us 45 days, 90 in, days. In some cases, you don't get any response at all. Yeah, well, the RCMP. Namely, yeah. the RCMP. <laughs> the RCMP just doesn't comply with the law, uh, ironically. Uh, who's going to stop them? but yeah that's it's an issue but at any rate uh sometimes you know you get a an extension notice back from a department and you say that's unreasonable and you file um a complaint with the information commissioner or you know you get a request back within the 30 days and it's all completely redacted and you're like there's no way this was all you know this exemption and this is ridiculous and then you file and then basically they have investigators that work with the department to sort of see what was appropriately applied what was not appropriately applied um i don't really know what they do for deadlines honestly i think it's just harass them and sort of how play, how play annoying music is at them. the information commissioner though I, I guess is the question that comes up uh well it's a great question i mean i think the access system is basically broken 
Um, I think that the information commissioner certainly tries, but complaints can take years to resolve. Yeah, that's sort of my point. Yeah, no, and you're completely right. And they they actually the last budget had. Oh, some... it is taking you too long. My, yeah. <laughs> I will lodge my five year plan complaint. Well, that's what I did, and yeah, no, it, it it is certainly like I I filed it with the expectation in one case that like I you know this is gonna be for my successor to bother with. <laughs> in in like five years or whatever uh but yeah it's uh it is what it is um i would say that there is more money put into the access information or the information commissioner's office in the last budget uh however i really do think that frankly the issue is that government is not well funded enough to comply with the law like i think they just need like more people to be on this and like that's frankly the only fix like giving more resources to investigate complaints is not really going to solve the problem i think that the the departments need to be better resourced at source to handle requests yeah and there's some structural structural problems um that make atip hard to carry out through the public service hard to dredge up information timely laborious etc well as we've learned from the, the mark norman case too there's often an incentive to try and avoid i mean i would not say that this is true in most of government i think most of government is actually really conscientious about their obligations um but clearly with that case and the some of the evidence has come forward it can be gamed at times um, to try and keep information from the public, which sucks and so, is bad. So this was the allegation in the Mark Norman trial that uh, pseudonyms were being used for uh, Mark Norman's name. And this was referred to in the court proceedings um, so as not to be disclosing responsive documents uh, in relation to the Mark Norman. Mm-hmm. And then it said they were using... I I don't, there, there were some quirky navy nicknames for them i don't know uh, but i can't recall any of them right now yeah um i i was gonna make one just policy proposal especially when it comes to the rcmp the, the rcmp <laughs> the rcmp for me is just it's mordor at this point well, for for a tip like forget of, about it one of the problems with the rcmp one they're, they're the target of a lot of a tip requests um particularly of People wanting to know their name within RCMP files and that sort of thing. Isn't that a privacy request? Um, well, they both go hand in hand. Yeah. Um, but there's so many that the system is sort of like irreversibly backlogged. Yeah. Well, that's the case um, with a lot of government. And, yeah. and a hard reset just needs to be done of like refund anyone who asked for their money back, their five bucks. And like everyone, we're starting fresh. Like everyone... at in the ATIP office, the RCMP, like just delete your re- hard reset your entire computer, like it's day one. Just bring your biggest magnet just, in. <laughs> yeah, just let the requests start to trickle in again because you're never working through this like one million ATIP uh, backlog. Oh yeah, I mean you get backlog notices sometimes, like oh, I'm the backlog unit. Here's your request from 2014. It's like, okay, well uh, I don't really know what this is about. Like, the, the value <laughs> is just gone. Yeah, like, it's just a complete mess. So yeah. it, it needs a hard reset. Um, something a, a BIA would be good for, for editing. And yes, perhaps. Um, but yeah, I think that that's just, it's a money problem. Like it's just, you, there needs to be more resources put to actually doing that. Uh, where does that take us? I don't I, think we have anything to say about the official languages commissioner. No, no, I don't know what they do except for yell at Twitter complaints and, and that sort of thing lately. I, I haven't seen any of their work make any sort of prominent yeah. waves in a while. Do you know who has been making prominent waves? I, I honestly can't even tell you who the languages commissioner is. Yeah, I, I don't know either. Um, who is making waves? Which commissioner is making the headlines? The privacy the commissioner of Canada. New York Times. Yeah. Um, for his standoff with uh, Facebook. Important to note also. So this was a complaint that was filed in March of last year. Um, that recently the commissioner presented his, his findings. And actually, it's important to note, he presented it along with the Office of the Information Privacy Commissioner of British Columbia. Correct. Uh, Michael McAvoy, who is, has a fun name. It's fun to say. Michael McAvoy. Yeah, sorry. Um, yeah, so that was into basically the Cambridge Analytica Facebook stuff about did Facebook adequately disclose to users what they were consenting to in terms of third-party data collection practices. His conclusion was that no, they were not that they had a privacy policy that was empty, that was so elastic as to be meaningless. These are, That's these almost are, verbatim. These are quotes from the report. Um, He's not reading off of anything. I'm not, no. I've just, I read the report very closely. Galaxy brain. Um, yeah, so that was really interesting. And he is now uh, moving forward to federal court to fight with Facebook there because Facebook basically 
did not want to accept any of either his or Michael McAvoy's recommendations. They, um, Facebook's position was effectively that the privacy commissioner did not have jurisdiction yes. on this breach of thousands of Canadians. Six hundred, per- About 600,000. Yes. Yeah. 600,000 Canadians' personal information. Yes. Yeah. Uh, well, and he was like, because you can't prove that there were any Canadians affected, is what he said. And then, then literally, like the next page in the report is like, here's our table with all the affected, <laughs> like where they all were and everything. It was yeah, it's pretty funny. Um, so yeah, that that will be that will be quite interesting to see how that proceeds. Uh, obviously, Facebook also got slapped with a five billion dollar fine by the American FTC, Federal Trade Commission, just the other week. So they're having a bad week again. So you said five billion dollar, correct? Fine. Um, and what is the fine that the uh, privacy commissioner is able to? It's like ten thousand dollars, a hundred thousand dollars, I think. Yeah, it's like not. It's, yeah, our 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 order of magnitude difference here doesn't really matter. Yes, because so, it's so small to be inconsequential, even if you up it by a, a scale of so ten. The, the privacy commissioner is interesting because uh, he's an officer of parliament, uh, but at the same time, he's also a independent law enforcement agency responsible for overseeing. Uh, PIPEDA, which is the Federal Private Sector Policy Law, uh, which is the Personal Information Protection... No, I'm sorry. Uh, I actually forget what the PI is, but the PIPEDA is Protection of Electronic Documents Act, and the, the Privacy Act, which is the Federal Public Sector Privacy Law. I'm just happy you're not saying PIPEDA or whatever. Oh, PIPEDA. PIPEDA, that's Oh, I one. hate that. Yeah, I know, it's bad. Uh, but yeah, so he oversees, basically oversees and enforces those laws. He ha- People can, you know, complain to the privacy commissioner about businesses that aren't um, following the law. Uh, it's it's a whole, like, it's, it's law enforcement. And I think it's worth asking, like, does it make sense for that person to be an officer of parliament? I kind of think it doesn't. Like, I don't really know why he's an officer. Oh, I kind of see why he was an officer of parliament when the office was created, because privacy was not sort of the concern that it is now and it was really more about uh the privacy act it was about governments dealing with um so so you're saying that as opposed uh, an officer of parliament as opposed to a law enforcement agency? independent yeah sort yeah. like either an independent standalone law enforcement agency or like the competition bureau within a department you heard it here first laurent is in favor of more cops <laughs> privacy cops i'm fine with do they get uh, riot shields I mean, I don't really see a reason why not. I just don't know when they're going to be able to use them. Uh, the, just just the, in case. The pri- Privacy Commissioner Mounted Unit. <laughs> <laughs> Privacy Labs. Just like storming into Facebook on horseback. Uh, no, but so it is odd because I think, yeah, like I said, I think when the office was created, it was really more a mindset of they were there to protect Canadians' personal information from from government, that they were really more about the Privacy Act and overseeing that. And that it was outside of government, much in the same way that the information commissioner is outside of government, so that someone who is not within that institutional structure is examining it. So perhaps it would make sense to have something like a a Privacy Act commissioner, basically, who oversees federal public sector privacy policy, and then have an independent law enforcement arm that does private sector policy enforcement, perhaps. I don't know. I haven't really, like thought this through extensively but i think that would be a model worth examining because it is kind of odd to have someone who is you know writing mark zuckerberg and saying you know please give us your ten thousand dollars uh so we will (laughs) it's like one of your a a mortgage payment in one of the houses you have that surrounds your actual house where you live so that people can't watch you because you're very concerned about your own personal privacy real story look it up um yeah so odd anyway privacy commissioner does a good job i like the guy super cool does good work anything to add um yes i have i have one thing to add um in each of these officer of parliament roles unlike i based on their arm's lengthness or their, their distance from government um they are somewhat empowered to participate in the policy conversation in a way that government departments and yeah, civil like, servants do not. Privacy commissioner makes recommendations all the time. And he's he's basically said, like, you know, if we want to talk about... And sorry, this is just the field that I, I know a little better in terms of it's the office that I've, I follow more closely than the others, uh, in part because I, I follow tech issues very closely. So the privacy stuff is near and dear to my heart. Um, but yeah, he, he's out there saying... I, you I know, look over at the laptop and there's no little screen on your... Uh... No, that's true. I don't have the little on tape your on my, my webcam. What, what, what are you doing, Mr. Privacy? I know, yeah. It's people can watch me make sort of frowny faces at <laughs> my computer while I read things. Very uh, very sensitive information. Um, yeah, so uh, he's come out and said, you know, we, we should put uh, political parties under the privacy regime. 
uh, you know, we should fund the office better. We should look at sort of modernizing practices. I think he responded quite favorably to what the ethics committee said that they should start doing uh, kind of a joint, you know, information sharing uh, and enforcement with the competition bureau because privacy and competition are kind of becoming intertwined issues. So yeah, he's, he's very out there, which is good. I actually think that does add a lot of value. And I think that's good pushback to the, should he just be an independent law enforcement agency? As, as are many of the commissioners, I actually believe he was testifying today on C-58? That would be the access information law? No. What's the national security? The 59. 59. Yeah. yeah. In the Senate. Uh, yeah. I think he was 58 in, past ages ago. Yeah, he was, he was at SECD today testifying on C, uh, C-59. Yeah, and that's in the Senate. Um, yes. Because yeah, the Commons Committee is SECU. That is right correct. Um, and similarly, the Elections Commissioner testified on C-76... Uh, I'm not yeah, I'm not 100 yeah, yeah. sure that he testified by I know at least that there were recommendations made to the committee uh, for amendments of the legislation Daniel Terry testifies so often like he's always testifying there's a lot of privacy related issues yeah. these days yeah but it's I just imagine he's just gotten so used to it that like he's at home eating dinner and it's like uh, could you pass me the butter um that depends. Uh, I would have to give that answer uh, some more considered thought, and I will come back to you in writing. <laughs> Which is the the right the right course. I'll yes. Always come back in writing. Yes. Um, yeah. I mean that sums up. I think all of the main commissioners. Um, we if your we, commissioner's office was not mentioned, we yeah we noted the auditor general and <laughs> yes. just to dive. well the AG doesn't really really good work. So actually, let's talk about the AG a little bit. Sure. Yeah. So. The AG releases one annual report or two annual reports? Two, spring and fall. Yeah. yeah. Two annual reports where he or she does chapters on a variety of government departments often. Um, there'll often be one on indigenous, one on prisons. These are common themes. Yeah. Um, and a couple air Well, it's basically federal service delivery, Whatever, right? veterans, yeah. uh, things like that. Yeah. Um, and under the Auditor General's office, there is the Environment Commissioner. Yes. Um, who does interesting work as well. Who also releases his or her own reports uh, on the government's progress on environment. And this uh, Environment Commissioner has been particularly scathing of the government. Yeah, I think she had a report that she spearheaded sort of with actually every other Auditor General's office in Canada, mm-hmm. uh, where they sort of looked at the the impact uh, of, you know, curbing greenhouse gas emissions by uh, the Pan-Canadian Climate Framework. Um, or is that? No, it's not the full name. Whatever. Pan-Canadian Framework, framework on Climate Change. For and Clean climate Growth, change. I think. Yeah. There's a clean growth in there. Um, and found that it was like only, I think we discussed this the other week, but it was 60% of emissions reductions that we needed. Uh, to meet Paris targets. But yeah, no, they, they do quite interesting work. And it's sort of the same kind of like audit function of the government's activities. Uh, as I as I mentioned, when Etienne was just sort of describing what usually gets covered, it is sort of federal service delivery priorities for the most part, not exclusively. Uh, but the, for instance, last year, um, there was one done on the Phoenix pay system, mm-hmm. which, you know, federal, yeah. I mean, not, it is service delivery, but not as a policy function, but just as a paying its own employees function. But still, still counts. Uh, and it, there's often, yes, chapters on indigenous service delivery. There was one on children's dentistry, I believe, uh, last year, and more recently one on education and on uh, social economic indicators and outcomes. The AG above everyone else is perhaps the officer of parliament that makes the biggest splash um, the most regularly well, there is a whole, when their reports are issued. There's a whole parliamentary committee, public accounts, uh, that is literally dedicated to going through basically line by line uh, the Auditor General's reports. Mm-hmm. Like it, It's a full-time gig for them, uh, which actually is pretty interesting. I mean, it, it is a bit dry to watch as a committee, but it is often quite interesting in sort of the subject matter they cover, and I would recommend giving, giving their reports a look, for instance. Uh, it's, it's interesting stuff. Agreed. Um, yeah, I mean, I would also say on the role of the AG, once again, I think that there is something to the idea that there is a bit of outsourcing of Parliament's scrutiny responsibility in the position of the AG. The AG does get unparalleled like contact with the departments that it works with directly, so there is that, and I think that stuff is not really duplicatable by parliamentarians directly. But yeah, I think once again, like you, you have a little bit of this kind of dog and pony show, and I don't mean that disrespectfully. I think the Auditor General does fantastic work, but it, it is a bit of like 
it turns into big gotcha reports in a way that perhaps is unhelp. I I don't really know what public servants think about it. I would like to know. Uh, if you have if you're a public servant, and have strong thoughts about this. Feel free to let us know. Uh, how they feel that it characterizes their work, how they feel that it's used by politicians. I think that that's the side of the equation I don't have a good understanding of. I feel like I would be irked were I on that side, but I don't know. I So my take on this on behalf of public servants is that... <laughs> <laughs> you speak for the trees. <laughs> the public service Lorax here. <laughs> is that sometimes something like an AG report is necessarily uh, is necessary to instigate change yeah um that doing it quietly behind the scenes does not present a significant enough catalyst sure to move uh things in the way at they the often same need time, to be moved to facilitate at the, the same change. time if you read if you go back and just look at auditor general's reports it's like they're reaching the same conclusions year after year after year about very similar overlapping program areas so especially with the indigenous file admittedly so you're right and let let me actually give you one example that shouldn't be uh overlooked um because it was incredibly notable at the time um prior to wernick's resignation michael wernick former clerk of the privy council yeah there was quite the terse words exchanged in public between the ag and the clerk over phoenix and the developments and the progress that was being made on Phoenix. Yes. And the clerk felt like the AG was um, misrepresenting some of the progress. That well, well famously, um, his predecessor as clerk, well, actually not his predecessor as clerk, uh, but two clerks prior. Uh, Wayne clerk, Wooters? Yes, Wayne Wooters. Is it Wooters? Wouders? Wouders. There's not like an OU is never going to be an elegant sound, <laughs> you know? Wayne Wouders is a funny name. Um but yeah, he had gotten into quite a spat with Kevin Page over kind of a similar thing where he was like, you're being very unfair to the government, blah, blah, blah. Um, so yeah, fair enough. I just, I thought it was an interesting parallel. Okay. Yeah. Um, it's been two weeks since we last recorded. In the interim, there have been two, pro- not, no less than two provincial elections. Oh yeah. And the Newfoundland provincial election has now kicked uh, off. Kicked off. Um, so Alberta, I think it goes without saying, Jason Kenney's government won a majority a pretty handy majority. Yeah. Um, winning basically everywhere. 50 except some except Edmonton. A hand, uh, two seats in Calgary. Yeah, two or three. And Lethbridge. Uh, no. West. Lethbridge West. Yeah. Shannon Phillips got reelected. Uh, I'd yeah. have to double check that. Yeah, I'm 100% sure. I'd have to double case. check. Okay. Um, <laughs> and most of Edmonton save one seat. Um, yeah, don't give me that look. Don't You're that saying way. the UCP won most of Edmonton save no, one no, seat. No, no, the NDP. The NDP won okay. yes. most of Edmonton save one seat. Okay. Um, and then in Prince Edward Island, there was uh, sort of a three-way there was, split. I would say there was a hung parliament. Uh, because... I would say a conservative minority was, <laughs> oh, was so elected on election night. I don't know. So I remember the 2010 UK election, which was the first... Um, hung parliament in quite some time uh i remember because the british media said it's a hung parliament because no one had a majority and what happened after that is the first party and the third party the conservatives and the liberal democrats formed a coalition and governed for five years fair enough and then the conservatives won a majority when they were reelected. good for them at no point over the sort like it's i don't know what it is about canadian media and i know this gets you know this is a horse that gets beaten to death every time this happens but it's just like just say no one won but this is the biggest party and there you go you don't have to say anything else that's all you need to say i can really see it both ways i i mean media i mean one is accurate and one is not i think it's obviously look foolish um if a supply and conference agreement were reached after the fact yes or a uh, coalition uh, agreed to form. But in Canadian history, those are very much... Well, and it's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy, though, right? Because in a sense, there's an expectation on the part of the Canadian public, which is, if you if you watch the news and it says minority government, and then yes. someone comes and does something different, you're like, oh, it's unfair, right? Because it's like you were given the wrong impression. But that's... Yeah, I mean... It sort of primes it, right? I, I, I don't think it's like, I don't think this is a shadowy conspiracy. I just think it primes the result in that direction. So let me say this. Uh, as a process-oriented person, I, I completely agree with all of your complaints. 
I just think it's a little overblown and people are getting a little too people, there's rattled a, there's about a little, this. There's a lot of wailing and gnashing of teeth, admittedly. I, I did actually find oh, it... no. I did find it funny. People are going to fundamentally misunderstand how the PEI government functions. Yeah. I mean, sure. Uh, it's worth reiterating, PEI is a province of about 140,000 people. It is about the size of Moncton, New Brunswick. For, for context, it's really not a very big place. Um, I think someone pointed out that they would be in New Brunswick. What they, a great frame of reference! Well, it's for the it's the closest most city of Canada. It's the closest city to PEI, anyway, um, or whatever. I don't know what's a city with one hundred and forty thousand people in it. I don't know. Can you name one off the top what, of your what's, head? What's unique about Moncton though is the magnetic hill. So like. Very incomparable to other municipalities. That's PI true. doesn't have doesn't have the magnetic. They have hills. very few hills. Period. Can't, can't compare them. Yeah, they're gables. I guess they have gables. Uh, the gables are green. The sand is There's red. No magnetic gables. Yes. At any rate, um, yes, this was annoying. <laughs> Though there there was a lot of this was actually kind of funny coming from someone who who you know followed maritime and Atlantic politics very closely when I lived there and, and still follow it very closely. Uh, people were sort of set people certain people uh were saying very loudly that they were hoping for a progressive coalition between the liberals and the greens the sec or the well third and second place parties respectively in that election um which was not gonna happen like there was just no prospect of that the liberals had just gotten out of government um they were running on probably the most right-wing platform of any of the parties running um like it's just what was the progressive here? People just completely. But so here's the thing: no one knows anything about PI politics. But why not look it up before like so like read like they... read like an article or two about like the party platforms or something before just like spouting off as someone with like a national media like perch, you know? Like because just seems like you should bother to inform yourself because the frames are very handy and people just want to presume that all the provinces politics are effectively the same. Yes. I I I know that, but I'm just saying that it, it annoys me when people who are paid to write every day about Canadian politics do not do the basic kind of like or hadn't done any thinking about this over the last month, right? Like it's just is like, come on. Like I do this for free. Yeah. Because in largely in provincial elections, particularly of small provinces, what happens in Ottawa is no one pays attention during the entire RIP period. And then, and then they watch on, election night. On election it's like, it's night, like people, they, they turn on their respective it's like a sports game. television and, sets yeah. and get on the tweeters and start making presumptions about how politics in that province works, having no historical context for fucking, the parties they're talking about. Fucking Central Canadians, goddammit. <laughs> Laurentians, upper goddamn Canadians. Um, yeah, we only have a minute or two left. Let me just make two quick notes. Yeah, we're getting, we're getting booted out of the studio. That is my apartment. <laughs> <laughs> uh, note number one, uh, out of Alberta, the not the UCP, but the Freedom Conservative Party lost handily. Um, in every single seat. I forgot uh, about them. Derek Fildebrandt did not uh, even win his seat. He wasn't even close. Um, this is sort of the uh, the foreshadowing, I think, for Maxime Bernier, um, who struggled for relevance. Well, for libertarians, par- they sure did get publicly owned. <laughs> <laughs> and whose party is really off the rails these days. Um, so that's, I think, a good thing. Um, and then the other narrative that I would point out in terms of sort of uh, third party plus... Um, is the Green Party narrative the big that under- is developing. Yeah. Well, the dramatic underperformance compared to the polling expectations, but yes. the historic performance of the Greens... Yeah, they did quite well, but they were projected to win the popular vote handily and to win the most seats also fairly handily. There's all sorts of theories as to why that doesn't happen, how committed are Green voters who uh, report to pollsters yeah, and I think a, Green voters. I ex- think a lot of it, too, is just ground game. Like, they're not a well-established party. They don't have the sort of institutional deep loyalties, especially in rural parts of the province. They did actually quite well in some rural parts of the province. It really has to be handed to them on that. Um, but, yeah, they, they did underperform quite significantly. Relative to polling expectations. Yeah, relative to polling expectations. But yes. they performed handily comparative to historical precedent. Yes, that is true. Um, so I, I think it's important to put both of those. That is entirely fair. Uh, hand in hand. Um, but it does appear to be the year of Greens or the did, year like, and a half of Greens with the Greens having won their first seat in Ontario. Yeah. Um, with their performance in PI, with the supply and confidence agreement, balance of power thing they have going on in uh, British Columbia. Yeah. Um, and the Greens are making headlines, they're getting interviews, 
Um, there are suggestions of a merger between the oh, This the is Greens. one article today. So it's also worth saying the Greens really do seem to be kind of trying so they had a tweet the other day that was roundly mocked on left-wing twitter about like we're neither left nor right but forward which is actually what the german greens used to say in the 70s um and i guess for the german greens they're actually doing okay right now they're polling in second in germany federally so good for them uh but i think it's they're trying to position themselves as a sort of like progressive but not particularly ideological party with a big focus on climate post-partisan i guess they're trying to scoop up as many disaffected people from the the bigger two left of center parties as they can fair enough that is that is that is pretty much the strategy that is available to them but it'll be interesting to see how that positioning plays out for them in uh in the general okay i'm gonna cut you off there okay fair enough We're, we're done what was the beer we had uh it was uh, it was a Berliner Weiss by Nita Brewing. I actually Which don't know the name of it. A local brewery to us as well. Uh, yes, it's pretty good. Uh, Nita is an Ottawa-based brewery that's been around for a couple of years. Um, uh, Berliner Weiss is a German style of beer um, that is a light sort of sour. Um, often involves salt. No, no, it's gooses. Um, but is often uh, mixed with flavored syrups in uh, its native in, in its native Berlin. In fact, I ordered a Berliner Weiss when I went to Berlin last year, and I did not expect what I was getting because I thought it was going to be a sort of tart wheat beer, but it was not. It was a big flavory syrupy thing, and didn't really enjoy it. Yeah, they're often flavored with like blue or did not green care for syrups. It. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but I've never the beer itself I've, is good. I've yet to see a Berliner Weiss in Canada served with the syrups the way they do in. And uh, thank God for Ber- that in Berlin. Yes. All right, that's it. That's all. All right, bye everyone. Oh yeah, you can follow us on Twitter at ShortPantsPod. Uh, recommend us to your friends. Uh, review us on iTunes, etc., etc., etc. Bye bye. <laughs>